Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. All right, folks, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Had another fun-filled episode for you today, and of course, yet another phenomenal guest. Today, I am joined by someone who is running for President of the United States. Say what? She is running as a libertarian, and she'll be facing a very fun primary against the other libertarian names, such as John McAfee and Adam Kokesh. Today, I'm joined by Kim Ruff. Kim, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, we did this once before because my my recording software crashed. So peek behind the curtain for folks that play along at the home game. Um, so Kim's having fun answering this question again. But the main <laughs> question was, to start out, Kim, you're, you're an absolutely fantastic and, and very nice person. And for you to run for president of the United States, I mean, that's just, it's it's literally the most powerful position in the world. Um, so with that, I, I have to ask you first and foremost, who are you? Uh, I want people to know who you are of my show. Uh, but number two, what on earth led you to say, you know what? I'm going to spend eh, the next two years of my life running for president of the United States as a libertarian. Can I do the libertarian thing and just pick apart something you said? <laughs> <laughs> Please, by all means. Okay. I disagree that the president is the most powerful person in the world. In fact, they're not even or really theoretically shouldn't be the most powerful person in our country because the way our government is structured and should have historically run, though it's gone far afield, the legislative branch is responsible for all legislation. The executive branch is responsible for carrying it out and managing the military. And then the judicial branch is responsible for determining its constitutionality. (laughs) Sorry, that reverb is throwing me off. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then at least as far as the global atmosphere goes, not really since the dissolution of the Cold War have we been classified as a hegemon. So I wouldn't even say that, that the position is that significant. And really, it shouldn't be. That being said, and sorry to be that person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my name is Kim Ruff. I am from Arizona. I got involved with the Libertarian Party back in 2009. 
I had originally changed political affiliations from the GOP to the Libertarian Party in 2005 because I really disagreed with how far the GOP had come from classical conservatism into something more akin to neocons. So I switched party affiliation after reading the platform and finding that I identified with it mostly. And then after I graduated college with dual baccalaureates in communication and political science, I got involved in the LP. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that in 2009, as you'll recall, the economy crumbled. So I'd carpet bombed every possible think tank institution, periodical, what have you, because like yourself, my background is in film and audio and communication journalism. And then the political science thing was just sort of a, a lark. I got the other degree because that's all the electives I took. And uh, the only people that bit were the Arizona Libertarian Party. So I'd been invited to come and join by Michael Kilsky, the then chair. And I said, oh, great. How much does it pay? And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> And as I've come to learn, it costs. <laughs> yep. But I did. That's my background. I started in the EZLP. I did different things: campaign management, working on campaign signature gathering, all the boots on the ground stuff. Then when I moved with my then husband to New York, um, I got involved with the Libertarian Party of New York, and I worked with them there. Started a county chapter, helped co-write the chapter development guide that's actually used in a couple of different states now. And um, then I got involved national in 2016, started by working on Daryl Perry's campaign, got involved in the Libertarian Party Radical Caucus, was secretary and then vice chair, Arizona State Coordinator. I was on the bylaws committee for the LP. So I guess what I'm basically saying is I've mostly been an intra-party person. And the reason why I'm pivoting and going toward being a candidate is because for a long time, we will sit here say, when will this wonderful, amazing, you know, beautiful candidate come along and save us, you know, get those elected results or get in office and enact these things. And we're always waiting for this savior. Instead of grooming ourselves and working internally to make one. So instead of being that person who complains about what we have and wishing it was better, we figure I'll do it myself and I might not be the best and the delegates will decide, but I will, I know what libertarian is. I can speak. I can write. I should do the work. I think that's what we need in the libertarian party, honestly, because, um, the LP. So I elephant in the room. I'm not sure if necessarily an elephant for my audience to hear this, but I mean, I've been very critical of the LP. Uh, I think the LP has, has so done, have I. Yeah, as, as, we as, all have. <laughs> I was gonna say, like they've done. There's a lot of good that the Libertarian Party has done, and there's a there's definitely a role that the Libertarian Party has played and and will continue to play. The problem I have is just the the manner in which the Libertarian Party has presented itself to America, uh, by and large. So I, I have said this before, and I'll say it again: nobody's going to take the Libertarian Party seriously. Until the Libertarian Party takes itself seriously. Um, and I say seriously in terms of actually being a party that looks like a political party and not a college, like a college club. Um, so, I mean, I, I know obviously this isn't something that the, the Libertarian presidential candidate would have to be too concerned about. But with this as the infrastructure that would be leading you forward in an election... Um, 
I mean, what what's kind of your perspective of the the Libertarian Party as it stands now? And if if you had a magic wand, what would you do to fix it? Well, I think the biggest challenge the Libertarian Party faces is that while there are some truly phenomenal human beings that are working in this movement, not just within the party, but in the greater liberty movement, there are so few doers and so many talkers. So you have a lot of people who are willing to lift that shovel and dig, but because they build a reputation as being this phenomenal workhorse, everybody goes to them and they get overloaded and burn out. So one of the biggest challenges we face, not only as candidates, but even as activists, is that there's so few resources to go around. If you're blessed enough to build up a team of really exceptional people that will work hard or you know, accrue money through donors that are gracious and kind, then, you know, the sky's the limit because you really do get to reinvent what we are. You can present it however you want to. We have not really been a focal point on the national stage to any great way. Not for... Maybe in the past couple of years. I say we almost were. I mean, 2016 seemed like that was the golden moment. Like you have quite literally the worst presidential candidate in American history and then the second worst presidential candidate in American history. And like you would think, right, that would have been the time that that we would have come out ahead. Yeah, (laughs) like like no pun intended. That was the golden moment for the Libertarian Party. Golden because yeah. LP. Ayo. Um, but that was like, <laughs> oh, I that thought was... that was a golden showers joke. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. None of that stuff on my show. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but no, like that was our opportunity. And it just, it's, you know, then you have, well, what is Aleppo? And then Gary sticking his tongue out and going, nah, nah, nah. it's like, well, that doesn't help Gary. And you have Bill Weld saying, uh, you know, I'm here to, uh, to endorse Miss Clinton. It's like, well, nice try, LP. Like we, <laughs> We had the moment, just uh, not the right candidates. And I know Bill Weld's on this, you know, Save Face tour, and I've, I've invited him on my show, and hopefully he'll take it up as an offer. Um, and, and you know, I think Gary's a great person. I just don't know if he's a great candidate. So it's it's frustrating for me as someone who I was really pulling for the LP, and it just seems like we, we let down this really amazing opportunity where in 2016, I would dare say half of the people in America were just looking for an alternative to just these two awful choices and we had that chance and we just dropped the ball. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. I think that was incredibly distressing because in 2016, they didn't even make an effort to conceal how cronyist it is, how completely sham and rigged it is. I mean, it really was like that moment in the wizard of Oz where they're like, don't look at the man behind the curtain, but there was no curtain this time. (laughs) <laughs> and we still like didn't manage to stick the landing. So that was a, it was really disappointing. It was very disheartening because it should have been easy to say, look at how corrupt, look at how just completely counterintuitive and illogical and self-serving our government has become. And we are advocating liberty. We're advocating unity and peace and prosperity and progress. It should have been easy. And yet instead, we had all these really damaging gaffes. And just to point out how absurd things were, 40,000 people woke up the day (laughs) that Tuesday, 
put on pants and went to the polls and cast a vote for a dead gorilla. Yeah. That's that's indicia. Harambe. Craving something else. Yes. And I could have been Harambe. <laughs> <laughs> and got 40,000 votes, which, which is, is kind of horrifying, not going to lie. Um, yeah. So, I mean, here you are, 2020, running um, to, to get the nomination. So, let's rewind. Let's say you're you're running in 2016. And I'm saying this because as you're running in 2020, I think if you were to win the nomination, you could actually make this reality. Is what would you have done better? What would a candidate, Kim Ruff, have done in 2016 that would have been more appealing and quite literally could have made a drastic change and impact in the 2016 election? That's a good question. I never thought about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's place it to 2020, because if you win the nomination, that that will be your chance. So um, you know, what would you do to promote libertarianism in a manner, and not just libertarianism, but the actual libertarian party? What would you do to promote that to people differently and in a way that's actually going to bring people into our movement. And then hopefully, fingers crossed, once they see all the, the chaos that happens behind the scenes, that they, they actually will stick around regardless. Okay. Well, um, here's my answer. So it, it involves a bit of an explanation. So just bear with me here. So in communication, there are two competing schools of thought. One argues that it's the rational paradigm is what it's called. And it argues that we are inherently logical and that logical appeals, you know, uh, conclusions that are hung on rational premises are what resonate with people. And that is what guides their actions, what, what bridges the gap between two people or a group and another group in communication. The other competing theory is called the narrative paradigm. And that argues that People are storytellers and that storytelling is what resonates with them more. That when a character such as a hero and it acts in a way that makes sense to them, reconciles with their worldview, that that will resonate with them. And then they will make decisions based on that story. Now, a lot of people in the Libertarian Party are left brain thinkers and most of them are intuitive as well. Whereas most of humanity are sensing and there's a lot more right brain thinkers. So you have a lot of engineer minded computer systems engineering type folks who are very rational and logical numbers based and communicate in that way. And it makes perfect sense to them, but it doesn't hang with other people because they need to hear a story. They need to have emotional appeals. They need it packaged in a way, told anecdotally, so that it reconciles with their worldview and they feel the humanistic element of it. And that's where we've been really lacking. We are awesome at debating numbers. We're great at totally killing it on the logical arguments. But what we're terrible about is selling it. Selling it involves recognizing that you are talking to people and not everybody thinks the way that you do. Most people are concerned with the what's immediately in their sphere of influence. So what they can taste, touch, smell, see, hear. That's all they care about. And knowing that and being a right brain thinker myself and somebody who is moved by emotional appeals and is moved by this philosophy because of its inherent humanity and because I've worked in industries that have required me to bridge the gap with people who have completely different backgrounds and worldviews and ways of thinking than I do, it, it 
I recognize that in order to sell the idea, which is beautiful in its own right, you have to sell it with heart, with emotion, and tell it to them in a way that it resonates with their experience. It. I've been sitting here just chuckling to myself because, I, so I, I don't know. I just looking at my show. I just feel like everything has snowballed to the point that like it all kind of comes together in a nice big bow, and like that. What you just said is is literally everything in terms of talking about messaging and marketing for the LP that I've had. I mean, I've had Matt Kibbe on my show. I've had Mark Claire on my show, and like. All these, I mean, Dean Clancy, former White House policy advisor, like I've had all these people on my show and we've talked about this and that exactly summarized all of those conversations together. So, I mean, Matt Kibbe talking about telling a story and, and that's, you know, what he does over at Free the People. And, uh, you know, uh, you have Mark Claire and I, when we talked, we were talking about, you have people in the Libertarian Party who, you know, there's people who are the sales guys and then there's people who are behind the scenes. They're the engineers. Like people need to, know their lane and if you're a sales guy then sell and if you're the engineer then then sit there and work on policy stuff like be the behind the scenes brains and i think what you just said kim that's that literally is all these conversations that we've had on the brian nichols show and you just you you, you knocked it out of the park because that's exactly in my opinion the answer is that libertarians get too stuck into what is this you know black and white paradigm instead of saying okay we have to actually talk to people and the reality is that a lot of these people they're not going to agree with us at first because they're, again, approaching, like you said, things from this emotional state of mind. So thank you for saying <laughs> exactly what <laughs> my show has been trying to say for the past year, essentially, um, here on in basically you said it in like five minutes. So kudos to you there. Um, so let's um, let's let's kind of jump forward. 2020, you're running for president. You've uh, you wiped the floor for all the other libertarian candidates. You are now the nominee and you're facing uh, Donald Trump and Beto. Biden, Bernie, someone, um, as, uh, who was it? Uh, Matt Wright. From the <laughs> the Muddy- three B's, yeah, the uh, Deb. <laughs> Matt, Matt Wright over at Muddy Waters of, uh, Freedom, uh, podcast. He called them the, uh, the, the evil B's or the triple B's or something along those lines. Yeah. Bernie. <laughs> That's Bader why we're the A team. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. So, um, so you're on the debate stage, right? And you're up there with, uh, with Donald Trump and, and we'll say, you know, Beto for whatever, whatever reason he wins. Um, and you have to differentiate yourself, but at the same point in time, stick true to your principles. So let's, you know, I think one of the hardest areas that libertarians have in answering questions on is foreign policy, because we either get labeled, and it's usually incorrectly, as isolationist, though I know there are some libertarians who are isolationist, um, but that's how a great number of people in society see libertarians as this isolationist group of people. So from a foreign policy standpoint, let's just start there. A Kim Ruff presidency looks like what? Well, it's funny that you talk about foreign policy because when I was in school, the thing that I found most interesting was international relations theory and foreign policy. So that was a lot of the stuff that I studied or continue to take classes on just because it's so inherently interesting. Um, insofar as how I would handle it, I'm a firm believer and advocate for diplomacy. Now, we talk about no entangling alliances. And of course, what we mean is not being involved in coalitions, not being involved in the United Nations, not being in trade agreements with other countries, not giving weapons to one or selling armaments to others, but instead having a even playing field in the sense that we show the same amount of respect, have free market relationships 
and we engage diplomatically with other countries without yielding. We're not going to be like England circa the outset of World War II where Neville Chamberlain was like, oh, just let him take Alsace or Lorraine. As soon as he has that, he'll be fine. You know, we're not that kind of people. But I do believe that it would be foolish for us to deny the fact that we live in a global society. We do. Because of technology and because of communication, we have come so close together and are able to communicate within a matter of microseconds with people across the globe. And that's a beautiful thing. That allows us to become privy to information we never would have known and build on that knowledge base and grow. So it's important that we have healthy relationships with other people, other nations, other cultures, and show respect without giving up what we believe. Like we are distinctly ourselves and we will take care of ourselves, but we will respect you and your autonomy just as we ask that you do so for us. And if you come over here and you try and fight us, we will fight back. So national defense spending is always an area I know libertarians push for the argument, at least, to reduce our spending. And then, especially on the right, it turns into, uh, oh, well, you're against the troops, you're against the military, and you want us to be at risk um, to to foreign uh, threats. So how would you respond to those arguments, be they, you know, we'll say incorrectly labeled to libertarians? Um that, you know, we, we don't care about the military and we, we just want to see America be a vulnerable target. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we absolutely do care about the military, perhaps more so than anyone else. And not because we, you know, put 70% of our budget in the Department of Defense. We care about our military because we don't want them involved in foreign wars. We don't see the value in having bases overseas, having a standing army in times of peace. So let's be real. We haven't had a time of peace in a very, very long time. Very long we, time. Yeah. <laughs> we don't believe engaging in foreign conflicts. It's not our place. We're not the world's police. We never should have been. And that we came into this position is an unfortunate mess. But we can stop the abuse full stop starting today. So I do believe there's value in self-defense. It's an absolutely integral part of our philosophy. We believe in life, liberty, and justly acquired property. And if somebody tries to take those from you, then you have every right to self-defense. And you can do that on the individual level and on the group level. Ideally, our military would be entirely voluntary, and I would like to see that be the case. But in the interim, I would just like to scale back spending, do a massive audit of the Department of Defense, because there is a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse, particularly in theater. It goes unchecked. And I know this having mm -hmm. been married to the military and having dated people in the military and, and kind of grown up around that. It's incredible how much money they spend. And on the stupidest stuff, $10,000 for a vinyl banner welcoming somebody back? That's absurd. <laughs> So, uh, was the there was an uh, I think it was an audit, and they're like, oh, there's was it a hundred a hundred billion or no, it's one trillion dollars, wasn't it? That was missing. They're like, yeah, we knew we were gonna fail the audit. We just, eh, yeah, one of those things. <laughs> well, you know what? Check the false wall on a shipping container because I bet you that's where it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's uh, let's segue a little bit um towards more more domestic policies. So. One thing I think a lot of liber or I guess let me rephrase that a lot of uh, libertarian positions that get confused 
or maybe a little mixed in with anarchism, and, and that's for a reason, because we have a lot of end caps within our movement, but um, the perception of libertarians, by and large, I think, is a little misconstrued in terms of foreign policy. And I think people, they will conflate libertarianism with libertine, um, really just doing whatever you want and, you know, damn the consequences, who cares? Um, so, as a libertarian presidential candidate, how would you, di- like, differentiate the libertarian messaging to make it so it's apparent that we're not libertines, we're libertarians, and then to explain what a libertarian is so people can actually understand and hopefully find some uh, some similarities in themselves with actually our, uh, our, our beliefs. I so love the fact that you asked me this question because you're absolutely right. People oftentimes conflate libertarianism with libertinism, not recognizing that that's not what we advocate for at all. Now, there are some folks within the Libertarian Party who are advocates for a free-for-all, and they have every right, provided, of course, that they don't, you know, violate our life, liberty, and justly acquired property. Don't that's hurt fine. people. Don't take people's stuff. Right. You Activity. do you. That's great. But for me, I am hardly a libertine. <laughs> Even though I was one of the contributors to Libertarian Slut, I consider myself their EO hire. <laughs> like, <laughs> the least slutty (laughs) but uh yeah as far as libertarianism goes it's very very simple it is classical liberalism which is a liberalism is a word that's been hijacked and changed and now it means something completely different from what it originally did but our philosophy has roots that are born in the enlightenment it came out of the renaissance and there's a glut of incredible writers who have contributed to this philosophy. On top of that, our model of jurisprudence is built on the rights of Englishmen, and that came off the Magna Carta. So these ideas are not new, and we're not advocating for something new. We're actually advocating for something that has been borne out multiple times over the course of centuries in various countries. So this is that's something that we need to remind people. They think that when we say we're pitching something that's radical, that we're advocating extremism. And it's not. Radical comes from the Greek word for root, which means that we are returning back to the root. And the root is something that has been tested. So I don't know if that totally answered your question, but basically anybody can do what they will Provided, of course, they don't aggress against our rights to life, liberty, and justly acquired property. That is the basis of it. So this is the part where I think libertarians, by and large, have difficulty. And we saw this with Gary, um, Gary Johnson, when I forget the interview. There's like, what does it mean to be a libertarian? And he said it means to be socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And every libertarian went, and we slapped their foreheads, and we said, no, that's not what it means. Um, But, without putting words in your mouth, what does it mean to you? What does it mean, if you're on, if somebody asks you that question, Kim, what does it mean to be a libertarian? That is such a, the socially liberal, fiscally conservative, (laughs) is such a sorrowful distillation of the concepts. But, basically, when somebody asks me what it is to be a libertarian, I say, essentially this, which is a libertarian is somebody who believes that we have natural rights, regardless of governments, to life, liberty, and justly acquired property. Justly acquired property being your body and the fruits of your labor. You have the right to do with those however you see fit, provided, of course, that you do not infringe on the rights of anyone else. 
We prize the individual above all else. And we are supportive of their right to exercise those rights. And because of this, we are vehemently opposed to any policy or program or governmental system or even organization that would try to use force to prevent them from exercising their rights. You have those rights. Those are yours and they cannot be taken from you. To do so is theft, enslavement, and murder. And that is wholly immoral and should be rejected. People hear taxation as theft, and I think they get turned off a little bit. Even though, I mean, from a true moral standpoint of a libertarian perspective, it, taxation is theft because it's not voluntary, voluntarily given. So how can we promote the taxation is theft slogan and the, the, the meat and potatoes philosophy behind it and the moral attachment to it? How can we promote that better to an audience of people who are looking to learn about libertarianism in 2020? That's a good question. The taxation is theft slogan is really catchy, um, but it's obviously the conclusion to a series of premises that a lot of people haven't even been made aware of. So I think that's why it is difficult for them to sort of bridge that gap. But um, basically what you would tell people is that consider this. Because you live in a system where the concept is that government is good and necessary, we assume that in order to better society, it's important for us to render unto Caesar or give to the government X amount of dollars of our salary. And so you give them that and for pennies on the dollar, because of all the bureaucracy, they provide programs that you may not want nor need. It doesn't benefit you in any meaningful way. But if you didn't have that money taken from you, if you didn't see it automatically pulled out of your paycheck or tacked onto your bill at the grocery store or, you know, taxed at the end of the year on your property, if you didn't lose that part of your income that you worked so very, very hard for, then you would have at your disposal the opportunity to buy goods and services that you actually wanted to do, to give to charities that you actually wanted to support, to foster and develop improvements in your community like paying for the rose if you so desired, you'd have much more discretion having that money at your disposal. But instead, that decision is taken from you. You don't get to make that decision. That is what the real theft is. You rob humanity of the opportunity to do good because they want to do good, to contribute to a healthy economy because they want to, and to support the individuals and organizations they want to. So that's what I would probably say. <laughs> no, it, it, so my, uh, my birthday is on tax day and, um, oh, God. <laughs> it, it, I, I, yes, exactly. Oh God, a libertarian whose birthday is on tax day. And I've always been saying that the best birthday present that I could possibly ever get is that it becomes a law again that if the government's taking taxes away from people that at, on my birthday, People actually have to write a big check to the government versus getting money back that was already stolen from them. Because then I I just had this sneaky suspicion that people would actually realize how much of their money is going to the government. Like if they're getting their paycheck in full every single week without any deductions and then at the end of the year, the government's like, okay, you owe me, let's see, uh, yeah, $12,000. And they're like, what? Oh, yeah. And actually, we need this in uh, written in a check. And uh, if you don't have that, you're going to go to jail. And then I think people may be able to like say, hmm, 
well, that sucks. And I really don't like this and we should change this. And I, 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 I don't want taxes at all to be, to be uh, taken away automatically. But if, if there was ever a, a step in the right direction, I think that would be it because I think at the very least it would open people's eyes to see what is actually happening. Not this, it's, it's like putting the frog into the pot of boiling water. You, you put them into to hot boiling water, they jump right out. But if you put them in to the pot of cold water and then you slowly turn the heat up, they don't realize it's happening until the, the water is boiling and the frog dies. So like that's kind of how we've been conditioned with paying income tax. And I mean, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg for all the other taxes we pay. Um, so with that, I digress. That's just my little. No, little that's awesome. Son. That's actually an analogy I make a lot because it is absolutely like that. We have it incrementally taken away from us. And because there are these slow cuts, we don't feel it. But if you came right up to the guillotine, you'd be like, whoa, they're going to take my <laughs> time <house."> out. <laughs> right. So <laughs> that's really it. If you were if you had to sit down and just have it smacked in your face, how much is taken from you? you would be gobsmacked. You'd be completely flabbergasted and horrified. But I think because things are done in such a incremental, systematic way, it's a slow pain, slow death. And we don't realize until it's at critical mass. And it's always the, oh, well, the the, the rich 1% person is going to be paying most of it anyway. So, meh, do I care. And then right. they don't realize that, oh, well, they have you know, an entire chest, like a war chest of accountants who are going through all the tax law looking for any and all loopholes. And uh, lo and behold, God, oh, that I would give you for a war chest of accountants. <laughs> <laughs> find me some holes to and, run through. <laughs> I was gonna say, and, 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 yeah, and then lo and behold, they, they find these loopholes and, and they, they change the manner in which they are, they're making their money. So, oh, it's no longer income tax. Oh, well, whoops. Guess what? Now I don't have to pay, you know, a, a, crazy was it was it alexandria ocasio cortez's a uh, proposal like a 70 percent marginal tax rate like yeah. good lord woman that is like i just can't put my mind into her perspective to say that what you should only keep 30 percent after whatever the, the the cap is you should only keep 30 percent of your income after that like, do you think maybe she's just kind of doing the door and face sales technique, you know, where know. you start out with something totally outrageous and people are like, oh, my God, 70 percent. No way. But and she then she's like, well, so, how about 30? And they're like, OK, <laughs> she just seems so genuine, though. Like she. So let me let me make this very clear. I actually respect her. I think she's incredibly dangerous. But God, do I respect her because she says what she believes. Like she is a democratic socialist. No holds barred. And she will tell you that. And she will promote every single democratic socialist policy that she believes openly, honestly, and to the T. Like, I remember, I'm old enough to remember back in 20 or 20, yeah, 2008, when you had Obama running, like the word socialist was being portrayed by the media as a synonym for, for being a racist word. Like people were, were trying to make it so, you know, oh, any talk of socialism is, is, uh, you know, that's completely out the window. That's insane. We're not socialist. And now here we are literally 10 years later and we have a democratic socialist who is taking politics by storm completely, uh, completely no apologies, unabashedly. She does not care. This is what she believes. And the scary thing is that what she's saying is resonating with a lot of people and we're just not having the alternative side uh, of our argument being heard 
because I think it goes back to what we talked about beforehand is that we're not talking to that emotional side of things. We're talking the, the, you know, the dollars and cents side of things and people just don't listen because they want, like you said, their, their immediate needs, the things they see, touch, smell here, they want those needs to be met. And she's just saying, well, yeah, we're going to meet those needs. The government's going to do it. And guess what? Uh, the rich guy, he's going to pay for it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I'm actually the same mindset about her. I do respect the hell out of her because she's honest. <laughs> That's a pretty she's, rare thing in politics. She's dangerously <laughs> honest because if she had her way, like she would make this place a, a socialist utopia, which is syn- synonymous for hellhole, um, because that's exactly what would happen. And it just, I just, I, I, I love the, the complete boldness in their proclamations of like, well, yeah, but we could do this socialism right. It's like, oh, okay, you can do it better than, you know, hundreds of years of examples of it not working and millions of people dying. You know, I think, I think actually what's really awesome about her and not her specifically, but what we've learned by watching her fast trajectory into office. And then of course, coupling that with what we observed in 2016 is a very valuable lesson for us as libertarians, which is this. We need to be bold and honest and stand up for what we believe. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who are frustrated and aching and they are so overwhelmed. They can't see a way out. And if we tell them, I see that you're hurting because we're hurting too. It's happening to us too. And while you're right about the problem, you're being misled on the solution. And we Mm. show them what the solution is. I think that they would be completely on board. It's just Mm -hmm. a lot of misdirected rage going on right now. Mm -hmm. And that is obvious with how the Democrats got completely blindsided by Trump getting elected. They were like, how the heck did this happen? Hillary was a shoe in. Like she was our, she was our heir apparent to this empire. And then he got it. And he did that by basically speaking to a base that had been silenced by progressives telling them every time you speak, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a bad person. They may have been quiet, but that didn't stop them from going to the polls. So that's how he got elected. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, her like Bernie Sanders, both of them have multiple times said, crony capitalism is a problem. You are being abused. You aren't being taken care of. And they're tapping the root on some of the problems, Mm -hmm. but their solution is so totally wrong. Indeed. And that's why a lot of Bernie supporters could be really great future libertarians if they just understood how fallacious their solution is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a a Democratic Socialist on my show, uh, Keith Rubino. He was running for uh, New York State Assembly up in northern New York. And uh, I had Keith on and um, there there was one moment in the show and, and... don't, don't get me wrong. Um, he's still very much a democratic socialist. Oh. Uh, no, he's still <laughs> oh, very much a democratic socialist. But, um, during the show, it was just, it was interesting. I, I've actually gone back and listened to that episode a couple of times because there was one point, and I forget the specific point in my head right now as we're, you know, on the spot, but I had said something in terms of, uh, he was, oh, it was, he was saying, you know, all the, the corruption. That it's in New York State, which you live in New York for a hot second. I'm sure you can empathize. Um, and I grew up there, so it's just, it's a nightmare. But talking about the corruption in New York State and the corruption within the bureaucracies. And, uh, and Keith said, yeah, but we're going to do it better. And I said, well, Keith, wouldn't it make sense just to, <laughs> to not have the ability to be corrupt and then to 
to have a system where you have this free market solution. They, they actually have to answer to the, the consumer. They actually have to answer a direct answer to the constituent, the person who's making the economic investment. And, uh, it was just one of those, he, he kind of like, Hmm. I never really thought about it like that. And like, I could tell it. it Please it, try. <laughs> yeah. And like, that was the thing. It, I could tell it took him off his, his, uh, his guard a little bit because he didn't expect that kind of rational approach to the discussion because I think a lot of people on the left, again, like this emotional appeal that they have saying, well, yeah, we're just going to do it right because we're morally good. We we're the good people. And the problem is every time that there's that one good person, you have somebody like a Stalin who's behind them saying, oh, you're such a good person. Bang. Oh, guess what? I'm the person that's taking over now. By the mm-hmm. way, I'm also an autocratic dictator. So here we go. So right. <laughs> without getting too much into the weeds about philosophy and stuff, because obviously, Kim, you're here to talk about you because you're running for president. So yeah, let's talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are getting to the point of the show. Where I'm getting ready to wrap up. But this is the part I think is the most important, because when people are watching the presidential debates between Trump and Hillary, especially in 2016, they're always looking for that little zinger at the end of the, the, the conversation. But the closing statements are always the the little piece, that little nugget that they leave the American people as they, they sign off before they go to the polls. So here we are in 2020. It's you, one of the triple Bs and Donald Trump on stage and Trump and the triple Bs do their closing statement. And now here's Kim Ruff, libertarian. Uh, she's, she's running for president in 2020 and she has the final word. What do you say to the American citizens and why they deserve your vote over the other two on stage? Way to put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> well, kind of dovetailing into what you were just talking about, actually, I would probably say something to the extent of this. It is evident in in some way, shape, or form how government is inherently broken, how this system is inherently broken. Either you have been abused by crony capitalism because it's driven your mom and pop shop out of business. You have been abused by property taxes that make it impossible for you to own more than what you can. You've been abused by a public education system that has taught you things that are completely untrue and hasn't given you the skills and abilities you need in order to be successful. You've been abused by a criminal justice system that is inherently biased. You know people who are in prison. You know people who've been arrested and put away for nonviolent offenses. You know people who've been harmed. It is obvious that government is inherently broken. And the very last thing we should do is do what my two opponents suggest we do and throw more government at it. You don't fix the problem by adding more money and by building it up. That doesn't make it better. Boom. <laughs> Kim, thank did you I so drop much. drop the mic? You did. I'm you like, just, oh, just oh, literally, it's, <laughs> it's that Obama drop the mic, you like you know, that gif where he you know, drops the mic oh, and yeah. does the kiss. That's 100% right there. And that, I think that's a message that a lot of Americans, they want to hear. Um, there's just been nobody that's been able to really say it. Uh, and, and I'm, I just, I'm praying that like a libertarian presidential candidate will, will get the chance to actually stand on the debate stage sometime soon. We, yeah. God knows we need it because otherwise the libertarian party is going to continue to be that, you know, little kid table, um, you know, little kid table party, which is unfortunate because with the third largest party in the United States and like, You'd think that we should we should have more support. It's just I I think a lot of people are libertarian. They just don't know it yet. I agree completely. Well, Kim, 
I uh, I'm really excited about your candidacy. I think he, you're you're bringing a lot of sensible libertarian um, beliefs, but also you're coming at it in a very level-headed, pragmatic sense. I know pragmatic is a word that gets tossed around as like something you know yucky to say in libertarian circles. I'm sorry. Pra- being pragmatic and being rational and level-headed is so it's so important, especially in libertarian politics. So thank you for for doing what you're doing. I think uh, you know you're you're a fantastic candidate, and I'm looking forward to seeing you go into the convention. and And I would love to see you get the chance to to represent the party in 2020. So, um, with Thank that, you. absolutely. I, and I wanted to give you the, uh, the the floor here for some some closing arguments, some some last thoughts. And one thing I've been doing recently with my audience or with my guests uh, is to maybe give a fun fact about yourself uh, to the audience. Oh goodness. Um... Well, I mentioned this in one of my debates because they asked me if people Googled you, what would they find? And I'm like, I'm on IMDb. (laughs) I went to film school. I was in some student films. They made the festival circuit. Don't get excited. But yeah, I (laughs) have an an IMDb page. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. (laughs) And there are actually some published articles if people wanted to find them on uh, the now defunct Libertarian Solution. So. Very cool. Very cool. And um, Kim, I mean, obviously you're running for president of the United States. So I think it's really important that people can find you online. If they want to learn more about your campaign or when the time comes to donate to your campaign. So where can folks find you on social media and where do you have a website, anything like that? Uh, we do have a website and it's about to go live in probably the next five to seven business days. I like how I use my work. Speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to go live, but it's what's going to be rough Phillips. 2020.org. So R U F F like dog barking. Phillips P H I L L I P S 2020.org. That's where you can find us on the web, or you can find us on Facebook at Kim Ruff slash John Phillips or POTUS and V POTUS in 2020. So that's something we actually didn't cover. In in why do I have a running mate? Elev- we don't run a slate. <laughs> yes, elevator elevator pitch number one. Who is John? And and yes, why is he already running with you for uh, for the nomination? John is a he's the representative for the Libertarian National Committee, uh, Region Eight, I believe. He lives in Illinois, so he covers Illinois and then encompassing region. So he's a representative on the LNC. He's run for office on a local level multiple times. He's been involved for years. He's a writer. Um, and we are very much the same mind on a lot of policies and programs. And the reason why we're running as a slate is because you can cover more ground. Only one person can go so many places. And because this is about the idea and not necessarily us as individuals, so people are buying into the individual as well, it's important that we have as many faithful messengers as possible. So we're going to try and hit all the conventions this year, if not both of us, then at least one of us, and get out as much as we can, get as much press as we can, and pull our resources to cover as much ground as we can. Awesome. And where can folks find you on, uh, on social media? Uh, I do have a Facebook page, but I actually don't accept friends' requests. <laughs> <laughs> not because I'm like, I don't want to know people, but because it's a little more private and personal. Um, but they can definitely find us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook landing page and there are groups that we belong to as well. And I think we have a Twitter and Instagram, though I'd have to ask my communications manager what all social media things we do have. 
All right. Well, and, and I'll obviously get those from you um, as we wrap up the show here. And I will include those all in the link to the show notes. So with that being said, Kim Ruff, thank you so, so very much for joining me today on The Brian Nichols Show. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how things pan out here over the next, uh, what, like 30 or not. I can't do math. 24 months. Is that where we're at? No. Not, not even. Tw- carry the team, I guess if 22. Math's hard. I'm the product of a public <laughs> education. Did you do Common Core? <laughs> no, man, you'd think I am from New York, but I did not do Common Core. Thank God, because if I did, I'm pretty what, sure I wouldn't be able to tie my York? shoes. Uh, way upstate New York, like as far north as you can go without being in Canada. Oh, I lived in Lockport. Lockport. So that's going to be more like towards Rochester Western area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good area, though. Lots of lake effect snow. Always fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Brian. Absolutely. And and ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed today's episode, please swing over to uh, my Facebook and my Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. And if you enjoyed today's show and you want to become a sponsor of the show, uh, as always, email me Brian at the I'm sorry. It's it's a new email address. Brian at Brian Nichols show dot com. And if you want to be a, uh, a subscriber to our Patreon, go ahead and find that at B. Nichols Liberty. And finally, if you want to make a one-time PayPal donation, you can go ahead and find that link at the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com. But until next week, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here for 2020 presidential candidate Kim Ruff. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.